Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. In normal times, my job takes me all over the world, and this podcast is devoted to international politics. But like many people, I'm currently stuck at home and unable to travel. So my interviews will no longer be conducted face-to-face. Instead, I'll be talking to experts around the world, but down the line from London. In today's show, and for the foreseeable future, we'll be focusing on the politics of the coronavirus. This week, we're looking at New York, which has become the centre of the pandemic in the United States, and arguably in the world with New York City now accounting for 5% of recorded cases globally. So why and how has this happened? And what are the implications for the global financial system in which New York plays such a major role? Joining me on the line from the city is the FT's Gillian Tett, who won many awards for her coverage of the 2008 financial crisis. Gillian, let's talk first of all just about the situation on the ground in New York. The last I saw there building a field hospital in Central Park. It does feel as if the situation is very much on the edge there. Well, it feels rather surreal in New York at the moment because there are some aspects of everyday life that continue as usual. And we have spring coming, so beautiful blossom on the trees and lovely weather. At the same time, the streets are almost deserted. There are queues around the block for the grocery stores because they're only letting people in one at a time. And of course, there is a sense of absolute terror about what's coming down the tracks. Now, the fact they're building hospitals in Central Park in some ways is actually very good news because it shows that the state now is mobilising with all the seriousness and innovation and aggression that it can muster for the looming spike in cases. But the question that many New Yorkers are asking is, will there be enough hospital beds when that spike comes? And I know we could probably look forward rather than back, but it is quite striking. Why was New York so badly hit? Because there was a period when New York and San Francisco were kind of level pegging, and then San Francisco seemed to manage to get it under control, New York not. Well, New York is the biggest, the densest, the most crazy city in America. And it's a city that prides itself on never sleeping, to use the infamous catchphrase, on having collisions from people all around the world and everyone being packed together very closely. And that's a perfect breeding ground for a pandemic in any situation. What's made it doubly worse, of course, is that there's been this huge fight between the New York politicians and the federal politicians about resources for the state. And New York has also suffered by the fact that overall, the federal government in America has been incredibly slow to appreciate the seriousness of the problem. Trump's attitude seems to me peculiar because he is, after all, a New Yorker. That's where Trump Tower is. And yet he seems to almost regard the city as an enemy. Well, Trump and the entire Trump family has a very schizophrenic attitude towards New York because for years they ruled supreme in terms of, you know, the New York skyline. 
and they were in some ways very keen to be part of the New York social elite, but they're never quite broken properly. People don't really respect the family. And having become increasingly aggressive and antagonistic towards it, so Trump has gone out of his way to punish New York for its supposed anti-Trumpism liberal values in recent years, whether it's by slapping big taxes on New York or lashing out verbally. And the fight that's been going on between Cuomo and Trump is really an absolute classic of the genre. This is the governor of New York. Yes, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has been essentially hogging the headlines and airwaves in the New York area by giving these daily press conferences just before the president's. And Andrew Cuomo, unlike President Trump, comes across as very reassuring, calm, science-based, really quite inspirational. And he's getting rave reviews from New Yorkers in stark contrast to Donald Trump. And I think the president is reacting to that. He's reacting to the fact that New York State has been asking for a lot of resources. And so it's been a very ugly, vicious fight in public. The one good thing that appears to come out of this is that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is as much of a bully as Donald Trump. And he does appear to have bullied the White House into giving him more resources. And it does seem that New York State is now getting ready properly for the looming pandemic. What are they going to do about the problem of the poor and the uninsured? I mean, normally, obviously, that's an issue in American healthcare anyway. But presumably, a lot of the people who are getting sick aren't insured. Will they be treated anyway? Well, the crisis has exposed the rot in the American system, and in particular, the absolutely morally repugnant situation where a large chunk of the population are essentially lacking healthcare normally because they don't have insurance or they have very weak insurance. Now, what's been interesting is that Democrat states like New York and California have bent over backwards in the last few weeks to stress that they will find ways to ensure that the poor get covered and get treated. Because the reality is that with a pandemic, you're only ever as strong in the chain as your weakest link. And everyone knows that if the weakest link, which is the poor who are uninsured, get infected, that will impact everybody. Perhaps a bigger flashpoint right now comes around the migrants and the illegal immigrants. And again, the Democrat states have gone head to head with Trump over the last year by saying that they will create so-called sanctuary cities or sanctuary zones where the immigration authorities cannot seize people and deport them. And that's directly opposed to the policies being unveiled on a federal level by Donald Trump. Some Republicans are saying that illegal immigrants should not be offered free medical treatment or treatment of any sort. Certainly Andrew Cuomo and the other Democratic state governors have taken a very different stance and said actually they will offer treatment. Because again, if illegal immigrants get infected, it will affect everyone else as well. But that's another very big looming flashpoint. And just a final question on the social conditions. As you say, New York is a city where millions of people are packed together, many living in small flats. How possible do you think it's going to be to keep up possibly months of confinement, given that situation? Well, New York, like many other cities in the world, is engaged in a huge social experiment right now. And the question of whether New Yorkers can cope with being confined is going to be very interesting indeed. On the downside, they don't have necessarily quite the same level of local street traditions and rituals that you're seeing in places like Italy. I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, and there's a huge army of anthropologists studying what's happening to local cultures at the moment. And in Italy, you have all this group singing, you have these group activities out of balconies, you have a sense of, in some ways, shared sacrifice, 
Whether New Yorkers will display that um, same degree is simply not clear right now. And traditionally, things that have tended to create community bonding are things like playing basketball together or even dog walking. And again, that's, of course, is problematic now. So I suspect that you're going to see rising tensions as you go forward, particularly if the social safety net is not very, very quickly patched up. And of course, one of the problems in New York is you do have rich and poor living side by side in a way that creates social tensions at the best of times and can turn very ugly if conditions deteriorate. But for the moment, at least, such is a level of terror that New Yorkers are heeding the calls to self-isolate. There is a remarkable degree of, dare I say, discipline now in the streets. That's been reinforced by the fact that although in the early stages people thought that younger people were immune, in fact now the majority of people who have been hospitalised and got sick in New York are under 50. And that's really had quite a chilling effect on the local population. In fact, I should say there's quite a significant chunk of people in their 30s or even younger who are getting infected and seriously ill. And that certainly kept a lot of the millennials um, off the streets recently. Now, one group who presumably won't be suffering from a shortage of space are the group that I think were christened by Tom Wolfe as the masters of the universe, the Wall Street financiers. But they have other worries, don't they? I mean, to put it bluntly, you've followed financial crises for a long time. Do you think that one of the side effects of this disease is that it could tip us into another financial crisis? Well, before I talk about the financial crisis, I'd like to talk about the master of the universe, because what you have right now is an astonishing dynamic playing out. On the one hand, yes, many of the masters of the universe have fled the city to their spacious estates in the Hamptons or upstate New York or Florida. But what's fascinating and terrifying for them about this current crisis is that money can't necessarily buy them safety. And you've had several of the masters of the universe be infected and hospitalised. You've had, sadly, one senior Wall Street person die. And although I'm not going to talk about it in detail, several others are in serious condition. So money can't buy you safety in the current crisis. And yes, the masters of the universe are insulating themselves from some of the worst of the physical stresses with their money, but they're getting infected and ill as well. Some of them are indeed fleeing. Others are saying, you know what, I need to stay close to the best hospitals that money can buy, which happen to be in New York, and so are staying put quite deliberately in New York in order to make sure that they're not upstate or out in the Hamptons where the medical care isn't very good. In terms of the financial crises, there is definitely a sense of cat and mouse at the Federal Reserve these days, because the scale of economic shock is putting extraordinary strains on the financial system. You've seen parts of it virtually break down in the last couple of weeks. And you're going to see these strains magnify, if not become more serious going ahead, as companies begin to miss payments, defaults start to happen, consumers start to go into distress. And right across the system, you have a shock on a scale that we've not seen, certainly not since 2008, possibly even bigger than then. So there is a sense of complete crisis inside the Fed and inside anybody who's actually trying to deal with finance for a living right now. Yeah, I mean, the thing you describe sounds like almost a classic form of financial pressure in the sense of its corporate defaults, rather than the stuff that you were so expert at describing 12 years ago now, which were these kind of hidden bits of the financial system where huge liabilities had built up that people weren't fully aware of. 
Is that correct, that it's basically companies going out of business in a rather traditional way? Or are there also these dark pools of capital which may come up and surprise us? Well, the important thing to understand about the current crisis, unlike 2008, is that although it's potentially going to turn into a financial crisis, it didn't originate in finance. It started in the real economy and in real science, i.e. with the pandemic, and the sudden stop in activity across the world, really, that's been triggered by that medical problem. So it's impacting finance, but it didn't originate in finance. And in some ways, that makes it much harder for something like the Federal Reserve to actually deal with, with its financial tools, because you can treat the symptom, you can't treat the cause, if you like. So it's important to realise that what the Fed's doing right now is really trying to do three things at once. On the one hand, it's trying to keep the wheels of the financial system turning and make sure that they don't completely freeze up. And that's what most of its programmes are designed to do right now. And thus far, on a kind of whack-a-mole basis, the Fed's been moderately successful in doing that. In fact, brilliantly successful in some ways, because the system has not frozen up overall. But its job is very hard and probably going to get even harder. The Fed's also been trying to keep confidence high by indicating that it is still in control, it has more things it can do, and just trying to reassure consumers and companies at a time when, frankly, the fiscal policy has been very, very uncertain. And last but not least, the Fed's also trying to look at the issue of the demand shock, i.e. the fact that economic activity has stopped and nobody wants to do anything right now. But the problem with the Fed's policy tools is it can't really deal with that because it doesn't matter how cheap money is. If everyone's at home feeling terrified, they're not going to borrow or spend it. So what you're seeing right now is essentially a demand shock, potentially creating a financial shock. And that's a very nasty combination. The one other thing that's become very clear, importantly, is that in the last two or three years, many of the lessons of 2008 were completely forgotten in the sense that shadow banks built up large degrees of leverage borrowing and big maturity mismatches in the sense that they were borrowing short to hold long-term assets. And those problems, which have been quietly building up in the system, are certainly creating big challenges now. And if you like, the chickens are coming home to roost. And last question. Obviously, New York, like London, is a global financial capital. How much of the risk that they're having to think about now on Wall Street lies outside the United States? I know that you've been particularly concerned about what could be happening in emerging markets. Well, the situation in emerging markets is pretty dire in parts of the emerging market world and going to become more so. That's partly because they are ill-equipped to cope with the pandemic in terms of their health care systems. It's partly because the sudden stop in global economic activity is going to create devastating recessions in many emerging markets. On top of that, they, their debt is being downgraded by the rating agencies. And then there's an immediate short-term problem, which is that many businesses in emerging markets are heavily dependent on dollar financing for their activities. And that's coming to a halt as well. This isn't going to be a sudden stop. But in the coming weeks, as we start to see a cascade of defaults going through the supply chains, you're going to see increased disruption in the dollar funding markets. And the Fed has been scrambling with really quite commendable innovation to deal with those problems. But it really is in a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as there's a tension flare from one corner of the market, it jumps to another corner of the market. And it's a very open question whether the Fed can move fast enough to deal with this unravelling dollar daisy chain, if you like. 
Well, OK, one more thing to worry about. Thank you very much, Gillian, for joining us on the line from New York and keep well in the coming weeks. Thank you. That was Gillian Tett in New York, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. I hope you'll join us again next week. And remember, if you'd like to subscribe to the show, you should be able to find it in any of the regular podcast apps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.